We are living in the first age in history that has denied the reality of sin. Dostoevsky, the great French novelist of the last century, predicted this through one of his atheistic characters. The time is coming when men will say there is no sin, there is no guilt, there is only hunger. And they will come crying and fawning to our feet, saying, Give us bread. It used to be that we Catholics alone believed in the Immaculate Conception of our Blessed Mother. Today, everyone believes he is immaculately conceived. There is no sin. That was one of the reasons why there arose briefly in the church the theory that a child should not go to confession before communion. It might give him a sense of sin, wrong sense of guilt. Does not the child know what sin is? Let any mother say to a three-year-old babe, Mommy doesn't love you anymore. And you'll see tears. The child knows what a broken relationship is. And that is the essence of sin. And if when we go to communion, we are not receiving our Savior, then let's have communion with Buddha. What difference does it make? As George Bernard Shaw said, sin must not be mentioned in polite society. Now, since this is the mood of the times, it is well that we meditate a bit about sin. What are the two escapes from it today? Well, first of all, one escape is we are not penitent. We are just patient. We are not guilty. We are sick. So we go to the psychoanalytic couch, not to have the sins forgiven, but to have them explained away. Long ago, before we knew anything about psychiatry, Shakespeare in his great tragedy, Macbeth, predicted the psychoses and the neuroses that flow from sin. Remember, Macbeth and his wife contrived to murder the king in order that they might take the throne. And after the murder, Macbeth had a psychosis. He imagined always that he saw before him the dagger with which the murder was committed. 
What is this I see before me? Dagger? With a handle toward my hand? And Lady Macbeth, she washed her hands every quarter of an hour. She thought she saw blood on her hand. She asked if all the waters of the seven seas were not enough to wash that blood incarnadine from her hand. There was no blood there. It was just the projection of guilt, but real guilt. Genuine, normal guilt often has an abnormal manifestation. And when we deal only with the abnormal manifestation, we're apt to forget that underneath it all is real sin. So the first escape that is used today is to deny that we are guilty and just to consider ourselves as needing medical, mental therapy. The second escape is rationalization. We rationalize our evil. We blame others. I was once instructing a stewardess on an international airline. I got up to the subject of confession, and after the first hour, she said, After hearing this, I will never become a Catholic. This is the end. Well, I said, Take one more hour, and then at the end of the next hour, if you wish to discontinue, you may do so. Well, at the end of the next hour, she was in a veritable queen. She shrieked and screamed, let me out of here. Now I'll never be a Catholic. I said, my dear young lady, there is absolutely no relationship between what you have heard and the way you are acting. Have you had an abortion? She said, yes. That was the difficulty. I might have spent hours explaining confession. That was not the point. She had a hidden guilt. I later on received her into the church, witnessed the marriage, and baptized the baby. A woman once came to see me about her brother. She said he had been under psychological treatment for four years. He wasted 90 pounds and... He was no better. And I said, well, I can't help him if his problem is mental. If it has a moral basis, I can help him. He was a, almost like a walking skeleton. And I said, uh, tell me about yourself for 45 minutes. I will not interrupt you. At the end of 45 minutes, I said to him, how much did you steal? He said, I didn't steal. I said, how much was it? He said, I resent that. I am not a thief. I didn't steal. I said, how much was it? He said, $2,500. He said, how did you know I stole? I said, I didn't know you stole. But I just listened to you, and you told me one of the things that you did when you went to church, you always wiped off the money before you put it in the box. 
and so I thought perhaps you had some dirty money in the back of your mind. And after that he was all right. Believe me, a great majority of people today that are taking psychiatric treatments would be better if they knelt at the foot of a crucifix and if they came to the priest to confession instead of rationalizing the way they live. These are the escapes from guilt. Now we come to the important question. How is sin forgiven? Washing in sands, as do the Muslims? Just doing penance? Ignoring it? What is the absolute condition for the forgiveness of sin? Answer it in your own mind, and then I will give you the answer. Ninth chapter of Hebrews, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood. Why blood? Well, for one reason, because sin is in the blood. It's in the blood of the alcoholic, of the addict, of the pervert. It's in the blood of the diseased. It would almost seem that if sin were ever to be expiated, the blood had to be poured out. And there therefore has been, through all recorded history, the invoking of some kind of blood for the forgiveness of sin. Rome had what was called the Torobolium. There would be an ox raised up on a great platform, and the ox would be gored and killed, and the blood would seep through the floor, and the Romans would walk under it to have their sins forgiven. They just had an instinct that somehow the shedding of blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sin. And all through the Old Testament there was the shedding. So I'm going to take you back through the Old Testament tonight and show you how real sin is and what it costs. Maybe we'll not treat it so lightly. And maybe we'll love more deeply the Savior who paid the price. When our first parents sinned, they were ashamed. They felt themselves naked. Shame is exposure. They made fig leaves for themselves, and the fig leaves dried. And they were ashamed again. How was the shame of Adam and Eve covered up? 
This is the test. How well you know your scripture. And incidentally, why do we leave all these things out of our catechetics and the teaching of religion? How is the shame of Adam and Eve covered up? 21st verse of the third chapter of Genesis. The Lord God made tunics of skins for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Notice three things. One, God did something. Second, it was done vicariously. Adam and Eve were not killed. They had their shame covered by the skins of animals. But in order to have the skins of animals, you had to have the shedding of blood. These three elements, at the very beginning of our salvation history, something done by God, done vicariously, that is to say, someone else does it. And three, it involves the shedding of blood that continues all through the Scriptures. So the story from this point on will be something like that scarlet cord that Rahab was told to let out of the window when when Joshua and Caleb promised Rahab that she would be saved and her family. So the scarlet thread is really the scarlet cord of blood. And we come to Abraham. Abraham is called out of the land of Ur. God said to you him, I will make your progeny as numerous as the stars of the heavens and the sands of the seas. But when he was 80 and his beautiful wife Sarah was 70, they had no children. Where's the promise of God? So she suggested that he consort with Hagar, the Egyptian maid, from whom was born Ishmael. That was not the child promised to Abraham and Sarah. When he's about a hundred, and she is eighty, God says, Now you will have a son. Sarah laughed at the idea. and yet believed. And they were rejuvenated. And the son was born and called Laughter, because she laughed. Isaac is another name for laughter. Now he has a son. The son grows to maturity, and God says, Slay your son. Imagine. He's promised this tremendous progeny, and as a matter of fact, three great religions of the world trace themselves to Abraham, Muslimism, Judaism, and Christianity. Now God says, slay your son. Take him to the top of Mount Moriah and offer him in sacrifice. Abraham, 
is a refutation, incidentally, of the fallacy of those who say, well, everything that involves obedience has to be rational. It does not. This was not a rational command. But he obeyed. And so he loaded wood on the back of his son Isaac. For three days, to all intents and purposes, Isaac, his son, is dead. And when finally the wood is unloaded from the back of Isaac, Isaac says to his father, Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? And somehow or other that question of Isaac was wafted up in the air from the top of that mount and it rung through the centuries. Where is the lamb? Where is And Abraham said, God will provide. And then the angel stayed the knife of Abraham. And the ram was found in the bushes and was sacrificed instead. One, God does something. Two, it is done vicariously. The ram was sacrificed and not Isaac. And thirdly, it involved the shedding of blood. And wonders, too, if that had nothing, something to do with Cain. Cain was afraid that he would be killed because he had killed. And God said, no, I'll give you a brand and it will protect you. What was the brand on the forehead of Cain? Probably the blood of his brother Abel. And after Abraham, we come to Moses. Moses is 80 when he leads the people out of Egypt. Forty years in the court of Pharaoh, forty years in the desert as a shepherd. And now he's told to lead the people out. None of the wonders or the miracles which were worked by Moses ever touched the heart of Pharaoh. And God said, on this night, I will slay the firstborn of man and beast in Egypt. The firstborn. Take a lamb. Sacrifice it. And take the blood of that lamb. And sprinkle it over the doorpost. Not on the floor. Blood is sacred. And when the angel that is to destroy the firstborn of man and beast in Egypt sees that blood, he will pass over that house. And the Israelites were saved. God did something. It was done vicariously. The blood of a lamb. And thirdly, it involved the lamb instead of the people. And thirdly, it involved the shedding of blood. And this law continues now with Moses. Moses. 
when he institutes under the direction of God a ceremony for the healing of lepers and also the use of birds in sacrifice and the use of the scapegoat. Out of these many instances, we take one, take the scapegoat. On the Day of Atonement, two goats are brought before the high priest. The high priest lays his hands over one of the goats, and one of them was chosen by Lot. Which of the two will you that I release to you, Christ or Barabbas? And the priest then lays his hand over the goat that is to be released and imposes on that goat all of the sins of Israel, just as we do at Mass, the very beginning of the Mass, the old Antigitur, now the invocation of the Spirit. So we lay on Christ our sins. And then the blood of the victim goat was sprinkled on this other goat, and he was led by a Gentile, delivered over to the Gentile, led by a Gentile out into the desert, thrown over a precipice. The scapegoat carried away their sin. God did something. It involved the shedding of blood. And it was done vicariously by a goat. Another interesting symbol was that of the serpent. For disobedience in the desert, the Jews were bitten by poisonous serpents. And God said to Moses, Make a serpent of brass, hang it up on the crotch of a tree, and everyone who looks upon that serpent of brass will be healed of the poisonous bite. Now, there's absolutely nothing in a brass serpent to cure snake bites. Nothing. But as the New Testament said, all of these things were done in figures and symbols. Isn't it interesting that when our blessed Lord came, he compared himself to that serpent? Night he was with Nicodemus, he said, as Moses lifted the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Our Lord called himself the serpent. The devil is called a lion. Our Lord is the lion of Judah. There are two or three instances in Scripture of Christ and the devil having the same because the Antichrist will impose himself as another Christ. Now, coming to the symbolism of this serpent. When our blessed Lord was on the cross, 
He was like that serpent in this way. That serpent of brass looked exactly like the serpent that bit the Israelites. But there was no poison in that serpent of brass. And all who with faith looked on that serpent, because it was done in faith and God commanded it, were healed of the poison. So our blessed Lord, when he came to this earth, would be lifted up on the crotch of another tree. He would look exactly as if he were a sinner. Guilty, condemned, but as there was no poison in that serpent, so neither is there any sin in him, and all who look upon him will be healed. I have a, I live in an apartment, a three-room apartment. I have a bedroom, I have a study, and in between is a chapel where I keep the good Lord. I pass that chapel in New York. I must pass it 100, 200 times a day. And I'm always very careful when I do to look at the tabernacle to look at it with faith, to be healed of the poison of sin. And if we had time, you see, we've only finished Genesis, part of the Pentateuch. If I went through this whole story, you'd be here until three o'clock in the morning. But I may take one other instance. There were two cases in the instances, rather, in the Old Testament, while the Israelites were looking for water. They were dying of thirst in the desert. And uh, God said to Moses at Rapidim to strike the rock, and water will come out. Moses did it, and water came out. Thirty-eight years later, at Kadesh, people need water again. And Moses is told by God, Take a staff, and then with Aaron, your brother, assemble all the community in front of them all. Speak to the rock, and it will yield its water. Thus will you produce water for the community out of the rock, for them and their beasts to drink. And what did Moses do? He struck the rock. He said, you hard-headed people, don't you think I can bring water out of this rock? Did God tell him to strike it? He said, speak for the rock, not strike it. And God said, for that you do not go into the promised land. Three times Moses did God, and God said, speak some order, no more about it. You will not go in. What was so serious? St. Paul tells us in the letter to the Corinthians, the rock was the symbol of Christ. And Christ is struck once on the cross. There's no other Savior, no name under heaven by which we will be saved. And by striking a rock a second time, Moses was implying that there was another kind of redemption. So the second time he was told to speak, 
After the redemption of Christ, we have an intercessor in heaven, but no other Savior and Redeemer. And that was why Moses never got into the promised land. Now we come to the New Testament. The first Passover feast of our Lord's public life. And of the Passover, particularly on that road that led up from the Jordan to Jerusalem and then, or to Jericho rather, and then on to Jerusalem. There were tens and tens of thousands of pilgrims carrying the one-year-old lamb, unspotted, without blemish. Children tied red and purple ribbons around the neck of the lamb that was to be sacrificed. Josephus tells us that at one time there were 240,000 lambs sacrificed in the temple. The Jewish religion was a veritable hemorrhage of blood. And as John the Baptist was preaching, he saw on that road along the Jordan these thousands and thousands of Paschal lambs. And he also heard the question of Isaac. It wafted from Mount Moriah. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And John the Baptist looked above the pilgrims and the lambs and saw someone in the crowd. Shouted out, look, behold, the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, don't we feel foolish for ever having taught a child or a mother. And now go to Christ without a need of a redeem. And then comes Calvary. When the Lamb is sacrificed, the true Lamb of God, And in the temple they were preparing for the Passover lambs. And the blood would be sprinkled in the four directions of the earth. This was the one day when the high priest would be privileged to enter the Holy of Holies. This temple in Jerusalem, which was the third one, was then being constructed. Remember, they said to our Lord, would you destroy this temple that has been four and forty years in building? But it was based upon the uh, description of the temple that God ordered as they were in pilgrimage from Egypt. I often wonder why architects never read the 22 chapters there are in the scriptures on the temple of God. 
where every single detail is mentioned. How much more beautiful would be our altar if we had, for example, the cherubim peering into the into the ark, as Peter says, wondering at the mystery of redemption. And this temple had a great hyacinth, scarlet, and purple, and gold curtain, about 45 feet wide and about 60 feet high. And on this Passover day, the high priest would take one of the, take the blood of one lamb and sprinkle that curtain. That was the purification that allowed him to enter. And then he would go in silently and alone to the Ark of the Covenant, which originally held the tablet of Moses, the rod of Aaron, and some of the manna. The solemn moment of the Jewish year. That was the ceremony that took place in the temple. But these were only symbolic lambs, and their symbolism was finished. The true lamb was on the cross. And the last of the seven words that he spoke were said in a loud voice because no one takes his life away from him. He lays it down of himself. And there is the rupture of a heart through the rapture of love, and he bows his head and dies. And a soldier who has been given the name of Longinus takes his spear and thrusts it into the side of Christ. And that was the moment that blood was being sprinkled on the curtain. Blood flowed out from the side of Christ. And at that moment... And this great curtain was rent, not from bottom to top, for a man could do that, but from top to bottom. And the Holy of Holies, which had always been sealed away from the people, was now revealed to everyone. And when the heart of Christ was pierced, heaven was opened. The Holy of Holies was revealed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the epistle to the Hebrews makes this comparison between the curtain and the Holy of Holies and the veil and the side of Christ. 
So now, my friends, the blood of Jesus makes you free to enter boldly into the sanctuary by the new living way which he has opened for us through the curtain, which is the way of the flesh. We have a great high priest set over the household of God. So let us make our approach in sincerity of heart and full assurance of faith. In other words, this veil was the symbol of the flesh of Christ. And now heaven is open to us. Why? Because of the shedding of the blood of Christ. What a blessed treasure is ours as priests to hold the blood of Christ in the chalice. Every time we pronounce an absolution in confession, the blood of Christ is dripping from our fingers. All the power we have in the pulpit is from that blood. And when you sisters, you lay people receive communion, you are receiving the blood of Christ. And when there's sin, always invoke that blood immediately. Do not deny guilt. Do not even be afraid of making someone feel guilty. Listen, sin isn't the worst thing in the world. You know what the worst thing in the world is? The denial of sin. If I am blind and deny there's any such thing as light, will I ever see? If I am deaf and deny there's any such thing as harmony, will I ever want to hear? If I deny there's any such thing as sin, guilt, would I ever be forgiven? This is the price of our redemption. You are bought not, bought not with gold and silver, with the precious blood of the Lord. When you receive communion, you're sprinkled with that blood. As Moses sprinkled the people in the temple with blood. And this is our salvation. And so in teaching, never, never tell a child. There's no need of forgiveness. Listen, we're all sinners. We were born in sin. And simply because we're not recognizing sin today and therefore not invoking the blood of Christ, what's happening? Why, we know that somehow or other the shedding of blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sin. So we begin to shed, shed our brother's blood in the dirty business of war. Let us get back to our Savior, to our victim. He was the victim for our sin. And a hundred times a day, 
Think of that blood of Christ. And absorb into your mind and heart and soul the supreme Christian truth. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And that is why the Jews were not allowed to touch blood. It belonged to Let us reverence it. One could almost wish you were a sinner just in order to have a drop of that precious blood.